We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Welcome back to 10 Questions. All right, so Eddie Perfect's comedy showroom show, The Future is Expensive, was on last week. I got the dates mixed up. I'm sorry. Nevertheless, I did get a chance to speak to the great man. Now, Amanda and I have been following the Eddie Perfect freight train since he was doing hard-edged, gut-punching political comedy festival shows nearly 14 years ago. We've watched him in avant-garde productions at Melbourne's Malthouse Theatre and mainstream musicals like South Pacific. And then, of course, there's television. He's a brilliant singer and composer who's genuinely funny and can act, as we've seen from his work on Offspring. This is a hilarious chat with Eddie that probably reaches its high point when he tells the story of Lisa McCune recommending he go and see her masseuse. So let's do this. As usual, I start by asking Eddie Perfect when he was most happy. <laughs> you know, I thought about this. This is the only this is the only question of yours that I've thought about. So it's just going to be the only bit that's worth anything. I reckon anyone that writes music and lyrics for theatre would have to agree that, you know, aside from the birth of your children and getting married and all those things, you have to say, which, of course, are lovely. Um, the sits probe is the happiest time. It's just mm. fucking joyous. Like, mm. so the sits probe is obviously for people that, um, you know, aren't in music theatre. It's when the orchestra who have been rehearsing separately to the cast uh, come together with the cast and everyone, you know, um, there's no, no one does any dancing, no one does any costume. You stand in front of microphones, you hear the full score being played by an orchestra and the cast sings to it. And if you've written that, you know, that score, that's the point at which everything that you've had in your head and, and more uh, comes to life. So wow. I often think about, you know, the shittiest musicals you ever heard. Musicals where you're like, oh, fuck, every song in that is a dog. And I can guarantee that Sits Pro, everyone was completely happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the joyous thing. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. It's like having a – you. Would, I mean, it's probably the closest I've got is when you're hearing great actors say your lines. Um, yes, that's exactly the same as well. That's yeah. an amazing feeling, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. And, and they're elevating it and you think, oh, I never knew it could be this good. Also because, you know, like um, like any job, I guess, you know, uh, there's a, you know there's a, that's like the pointy tip of a really cumbersome iceberg. You know, you do so much other just mm-hmm. soul-destroying, heartbreaking, and then just hard work stuff to get to that moment. And when you get to it, it's like it's so satisfying. Even because, you know, an audience hasn't, torn it apart yet or critics haven't got to it it's just you had something on the inside of your head and now it's outside and that's no matter whether you like make jewelry or cars or whatever you do i think there's something about having an idea on the inside of your head and making it real in the world it's just really satisfying absolutely um the next question is who would you like to apologize to and why oh yeah right okay um (laughs) this is gonna this is really, oh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but uh, I haven't apologised to this person and I don't know whether they'd actually be offended by what I said. I don't remember exactly what I said. Okay, here's the thing. 
So um, that's not a bad thing. I didn't do anything like fully bad, but <laughs> I um, it's just been one of those things that I'm like, I feel like I need to apologize. So I had a girlfriend who was in the cast of the producers and this is like, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And, um, and one of the girls in the cast is an amazing actress and singer called Anna Burgess, who I've worked with quite a few times. Now, she is, like, gorgeous looking. And I remember one time after the show, uh, she was dressed up going out, and I made some comment. I can't remember what it was, like, but, like, what it, what, what it, what it was motivated by was because I was, you know, I was just nervous, and I wasn't, the kind, I wasn't at an age yet. I was 24. Yeah. I wasn't at an age yet where I could just say, something nice to a girl that she looked beautiful i ne- i kind of negged her i think is what i did <laughs> and and it was only because i was insecure and i couldn't just go oh god anna you look absolutely beautiful so i always felt like that was a that was a really shitty immature thing even though it was like not a big deal and <laughs> if i apologize for it i'd probably sound like a psychopath but i think i need to apologize anyway so yeah you, you could ring her up like cold caller <laughs> yes, I know, like I'm in Landmark Forum. Yeah, you know, the people in Landmark Forum like yeah, call you, yeah. and they, and you can just tell because they just they want to say some really heavy shit on you, and then yeah. not hang around for your reply. I know, and then you just and you just like you're suddenly wise to a whole lot of shit that you didn't, weren't wise to beforehand, and you've got to deal with it. Yeah, and they're not they're not going to stick around to help you deal with it. They're like, oh, I gotta go, gotta make some more calls. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I cheated <laughs> on you. Uh, for three I'm gonna months. Go, gonna, yeah, I'm gonna call my mum now. Let's call. <laughs> As Eddie said, it's been 15 years since he awkwardly didn't tell Anna Burgess she was beautiful. And he says social awkwardness is a rites of passage for most young men. And he advises them to wait a few years as things will get better. You, you, are, you understand yourself a little better. You're more comfortable in your own skin. Mm. And I think that you know the, the thing that's made me do like pretty much all the things I regret socially. You know, you just have a social moment and you really beat yourself up about it. It's always because of self-consciousness on my part, I mm. think. I can't just sort of be relaxed and free enough just to say what it is I want to say. I find some way of skewing it, deflecting it, or putting him with it, and it's always weird. You <laughs> know what I mean? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And are you a regretter the next morning? What's that? Do you regret uh, those social interactions the next morning i don't anymore I, I i probably used to worry about that stuff now i'm like oh fuck you know no one died yeah. i don't i didn't say anything you know i don't I mean it's just more like if you're yeah i'm out having fun i don't sweat it my wife sweats it a little bit oh was i being too crazy or full-on i'm like you were being fucking crazy but jesus christ we're alive you know we're alive and yeah yeah and it's fun you know fucking hell let's, i'm not gonna worry about every little thing I did. You know, I'm not going around in, in blackface and, <laughs> you know, making intellectually disabled jokes. It's more just like more worried that, more worried that you're too exuberant, I think, is the, is the fear that happens sometimes. And I don't have that worry. I'm just like, fuck it. I'm just living. I'm living my life. That's right. We should be I'm able having to fun. Enjoy it's fine. Yeah. We should be able to enjoy ourselves. Um, that previous question leads into this. So what is your greatest regret? Well, I joke to... Um, my wife the other night because my wife and I had this argument about my social media yeah. and I think I kind of misunderstood what she what she meant because we it turned into this sort of fight about something else and then I was like 
in on my high horse. So I just deleted my Instagram account oh. from just completely deactivated. Yeah. And unlike Facebook, that's it. You can't get you can't get back in. That's gone forever. Oh. And then I found out the next morning when I actually talked to Lucy about what the issue was that we'd had relatives over for Christmas and then taken some photographs of Christmas and tagged me into it. And she was worried that everyone could see it because it was a photograph of my studio, which is at the back of my house, which Lucy thinks is the fucking ugliest thing in the world. And she didn't want people thinking we had this ugly fucking studio in the back of our house. That's what it was. And now I can't get my Instagram account back. <laughs> what so that, that, and I was like, well, there's a good thing that comes out of that. When I talk to Adam Zouar, I'm going to have a regret. <laughs> I think that she was making something that was her problem, my problem. <laughs> I can say this because this is like a one-sided argument where I get my argument and I sound like I'm right and, um, and she's not here to counter it. Um, I but I knew it was the fact that she didn't want to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone saying, can you not put up a photo of my yes. ugly house? And if it was just, if it was just shared amongst friends because I'm tagged in, I don't understand how this works, but I think if I'm tagged into it, a lo- everyone that I'm friends with can see it. And because I'm friends with like just random people, because I like, you know, to have a bit of a cross section of humanity on my feed. Yeah. She doesn't trust them with the information that we've got a <laughs> shitty studio in the back of our house. So there's potentially 5,000 people judging us right now. And, you know, I can live with that, but Lucy can't. So the next question is what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Oh. <laughs> do you always have these minutes of silence after your questions? Yeah, yeah. Or are people yeah. actually prepared? Um, what do I need to do to live a more satisfactory life? Oh, no, to feel you've lived a satisfactory do- life. All oh, right, so the end of my days ago. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, look, you know, I've got, um, you know, I've got my number one ambition is to write Broadway musicals. So, you know, I'm kind of in the process of doing that. Yeah. But, um, but I think I mean, the answer to your question is that there probably isn't anything you can do so that you die going, ah, oh, that was pretty good. I think yeah. because I think that um, that sounding too wanky about it, I'm really happy to be like you know an, an, an artist and working in lots of different genres because it's kind of like a mountain you never get to the top of. Yeah. Um, and you know it's just kind of exciting and interesting climbing up. But I think if you um, you know, if you lived forever, um, you might get a little higher up the mountain, but then there wouldn't be much point climbing it. So, you know, I think it's about having that fine out amount of time and dying a little bit unsatisfied, being able to look back and go, you know what, so I, you know, I, I, I chucked a couple of ideas into the pot. That's yeah. kind of, I think I'd, that would be necessary for me. When did you realise that, that Broadway writing musicals was what you wanted to do? Um, well, I didn't even know that I could write songs until very late. I didn't start writing songs for, um, always musical, but I didn't start writing songs for theatre until I went to, um, Whopper and studied music theatre. And it's just an opp- a lot of opportunities to write, um, songs for group device projects and stuff. So I put my hand up for every opportunity and wrote and... You know, getting from one end of a song to the nut to the end is uh, it's like a big task when you're writing songs. So you just kind of concentrate on that. And then it wasn't until I would, 
written my second solo show, which is called Drink Pepsi Bitch, and I was writing these songs <laughs> with multiple characters and, you know, multiple sort of musical sections. It was like a one-person musical where I had to play all the parts. Yeah. And that was stressful, you know. I, was, I wasn't doing it very well. And I was like, you know, how just get a cast. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote Shane Bourne the musical. So, I mean, I always kind of, I, I, you know, I, I, I never sort of dreamed it was something I would do or even like to do because I didn't know how to do it. Mm. So it's not until you start it and go, oh, yeah. I mean, even now it's like writing a, writing a score for a musical. It's a, it's a big it's a big task, you know, like it's yeah. not just writing, you know, 24 songs. It's writing three times as many as that and throwing things out and pulling them back in and yeah. trying, you know, making lots of considerations and concessions. You know, it's, it's a, it's a big task. So you don't just go, Oh yeah, now I can write musical stamp tick. You're like, it's just a continual sort of paranoid, terrifying, exhilarating journey where you just don't know whether you can do it until you, until you do it, you know? So, <laughs> That's um, I find I find that incredibly satisfying mm. and and frustrating, um, but it's you know it's like the thing that I love. I love kind of above and beyond a, a lot, whole lot of other things. I love it's definitely writing music and lyrics is the thing that I love the most. It's the, it's one of the hardest things, but um, yeah, totally. And now Eddie gives us a small insight into his songwriting process. I always think about how I want I want the audience to feel about that particular character. And in order to, to do that, you need to write from a place where um, the song you're writing affects you. Like you, you kind of, you're both, um, it's weird because you're writing it and you're singing it and you sing at the piano. So you're both sort of singer and audience at the same time. Mm. And you're trying to have a kind of a communication between yourselves. And so when you get to a point where you think, yeah, I've, I've achieved that. I, this, is, this is what I think an audience is going to feel in this moment. Then, you know, then there's like fucking proof. You know, there's a yeah. <laughs> they're sitting in the theater and, and, and it either happens or it doesn't happen. It happens with some people, but it doesn't happen with others. It happens to not enough people or it's a success. So that's... Yeah, it's completely, completely terrifying. But it's also fantastic. Like, you know, it's like sitting sitting alone in a very lonely space, actually, writing stuff that eventually is supposed to affect a lot of people. It's, it's really, it's really weird. It's like being a chem- chemist or something. Yeah, it is exactly. You're you're kind of um, creating penicillin or something. You know, just by yeah. yourself. But, yeah, I don't know what's going to hit him. <laughs> right now, Eddie's talking to me instead of sitting alone in a room writing a musical that he's been commissioned to write, the title of which is yet to be announced. But all I can say is it's massive. It's American and quite a responsibility. And I've never experienced anything like the um, the nexus of commerce and art that happens with music theatre in New York. Yeah. Like, like for, you know, they are chasing that dollar like, motherfuckers but at the same yeah. time no one cuts corners i mean they know who people who the quality creatives are they know um who makes good stuff and whether it's right for that project and they put the the money and the time into development and you know so it's it's like it's high stakes yeah it's completely commercial but it's also completely creative at the same time and actually i love that i love those conditions more than anything else like i i know that there's this new sort of well, maybe it's not new. I think it is new attitude that art like needs to happen 
with, with absolutely no deadline. And you need to have all, like, you know, if you had all the time in the world, what would you create? And I think you'd create a pile of shit. Yeah, you know? yeah, yes. Bach had to write a mass every single Sunday. I mean, he had a deadline from God. He had to yeah. turn that shit in. Yeah. And, and that pressure creates amazing creativity. Like pressure and deadlines, I think, are vital for creativity. And also what I, th- you know, I, I understand there are some art forms that need to be supported because they're maybe not as mainstream commercially popular as a as a musical but what i really love about working in commercial music theater is that you want a huge amount of people to love this Mm. and it's really uh, you know i know that you know commercial ventures often get um pilloried for being less creative and less artistic you know and people kind of pick and choose things that they think are works of art things that are but you look at a comedy film that you love and how beautifully shaped and crafted it is and how many people love that love that piece and i i you know i think that i completely respect all art forms but i me personally i love the idea of trying to engage a really huge amount of people lots of different people from different ages yes different walks of life a because it means you know success is good and it means that you can work on that scale because there's money coming in and it's a worthwhile investment but also it's just great to engage with a lot of people culturally that's I th- that's something that i'm that's right in. that's right i don't want to preach to convert it i want to you know you, you you do want to actually uh get your message out there um mm. yeah i i totally agree with the deadline thing because if you give me six six weeks to write something i'll take six weeks you know I'll, t- I'll take two weeks as well, and I reckon it'll be similar and standard. In fact, the six-week version will just be probably more pretentious. Sometimes speed alleviates the pretentiousness. It does, it does. You know, if I've got more time, I tend to write more big print. You know, <laughs> oh, there's a table. All of a sudden, there's a fucking table. Or, you know, yeah. get an idea of what a room looks like. But otherwise, I don't give a shit. I'm like, here's something. It's a room. You know, fucking you know Eddie's dictating and set dressing now. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, we need to bring the deadline forward. That's right. The next question is, who is the person who most influenced you and how? Hmm. Well, obviously, well, obviously, I think everyone is their parents because they're there when, the, when, the, when that, that tape is written and it's very hard to unwrite between mm. zero and five. So I think, you know, you get everything from your parents, especially like, you know, um, from my father, I... I, I, you know, I share a lot of his values and because, you know, all my formative years were spent with my father. My father was the, probably the mother and father. Um, but I think particularly my father was, was the person who, you know, I'd go out into the world, into school, and I would um, obviously receive a lot of information. But when I came home, we were, you know, a very kind of um, close family and we talked a lot, you know, there was... There were no sort of televisions. It was sitting around the table and having dinner together and, and talking. And um, and so that, I guess, my father would be the lens through which everything that I'd acquired out in the world sort of was poured. And um, it was interesting, the values that I kind of, uh, that I share here, this kind of value, which I think is one of the most important, is that, you know, that um, when it came to books, that, that they weren't like a budgetable um, entity that you didn't go, oh, we haven't got money. There was always money for books. You didn't think about spending 
money on books. Books kind of exist unlike any other object that you buy, apart from food or whatever. You know, books was just like, if you go in a bookstore, you buy books. And every I remember every weekend he would buy us a book and you know, we'd go into a bookstore and we'd look through books and we'd choose them, you know, from starting from picture books all the way up through, you know. And, and I often know as a father, you know, seeing my kids pick up books and I'm like, ah, that book's a piece of shit. They should be, you know, getting this book, you know. Uh, it's very important for kids to choose their own book and what did he do i've got that what did your dad do my dad was a high school teacher so he taught humanities and um my mum was a high school teacher as well and she um was an art coordinator visual art coordinator that sounds great that it seems like a very cultural and learning household yeah it was it was you know and i was very lucky lucky like, like i think um i've noticed over my sort of schooling and and my career that i've had pretty much at every at every stage of that a really influential teacher and it, it was really interesting because they weren't necessarily right in the pocket of a field that I was interested in but I had a um had a really great connection with um with my history teacher at St Bede's College where I went to school and I think w- what I learned from him was the first teacher I had that taught me how to love um learning and how to um, use the tools of education, not just to sort of like fill up this well with knowledge, but that, you know, you had the tools to go out and acquire more knowledge, that it was your job to investigate that stuff. And that was a really a big thing. I think that kind of laid the foundation for other great teachers, a great literature teacher, wow. and uh, where I really kind of got into analysing books. And I mean, reading books is one of the sort of the most valued things, I think, in my life. I think it's so important. Mm. Um, and then amazing singing teachers and, and who have always kind of ended up with the kind of weird singing teacher that everyone wanted to leave <laughs> um, because they couldn't understand what the fuck they were talking about. I kind of like I kind of like the eccentrics, you know. Me too. Singing, yeah. singing, learning singing is a, is a kind of an odd thing because unlike an instrument where you arrive at the instrument and you know you may be different, but the instrument's the same. Like I can, you know, I can feel different on different days, but I know that the piano is the piano and it's going to react when I touch it. You know. Yeah. In a in a certain way, every time you arrive at singing, there isn't the instruments inside. You can't see it, and so it's a really visual. It's a really visual kind of um, teaching process, trying to imagine what shapes are being made, what muscles are being engaged inside of your, you know, mouth and throat and mm. stomach. When really you can't see any of that, but you do you do have to imagine it. Um, so it's a weird process. So you, finding a, a singing teacher that works is, is, is a really tricky thing, but I, I had great singing teachers that were properly eccentric with how they, how they taught singing, and I like that. And, you know... Voices are a weird instrument because um, it's so personal. You know, mm. it's the thing, this thing that travels from us to other people, whether we're talking or singing, and, and we hear our voice in one way, but it sounds different on the outside. And um, you just basically, it's a lifelong process of getting to the point where you're like, go, okay, well, that's what I sound like. So I guess that's what I sound like. Same, same with television acting, where you're like, Theatre acting, you don't have to worry about what the fuck you look like. That's everyone else's problem. Yeah, yeah. T- TV, if you're watching back a performance on on telly, which is like a, I find excruciating. Yeah. All, I, you can, all you're confronted with is, oh, my God, is that what I look like? Yeah. Is that what I look like? And then eventually you just go, ah, oh, fuck, I guess that's my stupid fucking head. Oh, mate, that's it. I, I, I'm he- I hear you because if you're playing a leading man, they will move heaven and earth to make you that 10% better looking. 
<laughs> but if you're a character actor, you will yep. be made to look 15 to 20% uglier than what you actually look like. And yeah. for most yeah. most shows I go on, they fucking shave me, comb my hair in a certain way, and I just don't even watch myself anymore. I don't... Unless I actually created the show, I do not watch myself. It's just too painful. I wonder what Leonardo DiCaprio thinks when he's, like, watching The Revenant and he's got, like, you know, frost in his beard and he's covered in horse blood and teeth missing. I don't know what. (laughs) Do you reckon he loves it? Maybe because he's so used to being just, like, so perfect looking that he goes, oh, this is fun. This is interesting. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon there would be a bit of that. I took the next bit out where I repeated a rumour about two actors who worked together on a project and apparently didn't like each other. It's part of my ongoing war against the John Michael House and part of my personality. Nevertheless, it led to Eddie and I talking about on-set popularity. I mean, how many times have you really hated someone on set? Yeah, just I, I've generally been the one who's been hated um <laughs> I, really yeah you're walking but sometimes when i was talking about this the other day that you know you've just met someone like on the gig i'm doing at the moment i'm playing an unlikable person and because they don't know who i am that's carried on to the green room you're a a, you're unlikable everywhere yeah it's like you know uh, i'm just not embraced you know i'm i i'm just that dude and oh that's great yeah, it's just so, easier it's easier for them to act if they don't like you that's that's it it's just a shortcut and uh but <laughs> i've um i'm uh yeah so i'm dealing with that at the moment um but i have oh. i i've never i always try and make guest actors feel comfortable and things like that because you know that that's the worst when you because as a guest actor you're just like kind of walking onto someone in, into someone's workplace for a few weeks and um, oh god yeah it's very uncomfortable I never really understood that um, properly until one of the first gigs I ever had out of um, drama school was um, Blue Healers. I did, an, yeah. I did an episode of Blue Healers. I was on it for a week. And, um, I mean, you, you just learn where the toilets are and then you're gone, you know. <laughs> but I, I, I just thought that... I thought Blue Heels cast was what casts were like. And I've since learnt that... We lost transmission for a moment. Maybe it was something to do with Eddie making himself a cup of tea. When it returned, we got back to the rough-and-tumble world of doing guest roles on Blue Heelers. Yeah, so that was the clickiest, absolute clickiest cast ever. Yeah. There was, they had in-jokes that had been running for 10 years, I think, and <laughs> it was just impenetrable, really. And I... Um, and so I was sort of just like hanging around weirdly on on this very weird set because it's like a, you know, it's a proper constructed set in a studio. And um, no one would really talk to me. And I remember, you know, Martin Sachs wouldn't talk to me, but I had to do a scene with Martin Sachs. And I was like, I was in a nightclub, right? So, and my character was, I was like, God, oh, I'd, I'd played a lot of um, drug dealers when I got out of uni. <laughs> Yeah. And so this, this when I got the script, I was like, "Yeah, I'm playing a law student." But it turned out it was a law student that dealt heroin, <laughs> uh, as they do. And um, and so I'm uh, in this nightclub scene where I'm dancing around, and then Martin Sachs would come up and put his hand on my shoulder, and I'd turn around and he'd say, "He'd say you're coming with me, Mark." Right? That was the, what was in the script. But every take, Martin, <laughs> Martin Sachs would change the line he tried a different line 
And I thought, oh, it's Martin Sachs. He can do what he wants. And I imagine that, you know, if you <laughs> if you were scripting Blue Healers, you'd probably be furious. But like, fucking hell, this guy. Literally not once did he say that line. And because he was so serious and basically it was just, it was basically Martin Sack got his chance to do you're nicked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> because they were increasingly bizarre, I'd turn around and I just, I just laugh. I mean, I just laughed and he was getting really frustrated because he'd like tap me on the shoulder. I'd turn around and he'd go, care to dance Mark. And I'd be like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a very long process. Um, so Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a that was a weird one. I did I did a Blue Hills probably the same era, and um, William Mc, it was a new director, and William McInnes I was William McInnes had to throw me up against a uh, a trailer, and then pad me down, and the director said, "I oh, said so you pad him down and um and see if he's got any weapons," and and uh, William McInnes goes, "And how do I do this? How do I do that?" And the director goes, well, you, you know how to do that, don't you? And he goes, oh, sorry, I, I'm not actually a cop. I'm an actor playing a cop. <laughs> and, you know, the director's trying to be really polite and trying to get the whole, you know, <laughs> keep the mood on set really nice and everything. And But those guys were over it. They were fucking over it. Yeah. It was also there the, the day that Damien Walsh Howling told Lisa McCune she had a lazy eye. Oh, shit. <laughs> Are you serious? Does she? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really. He goes, you got a lazy eye. Well, that put production back half an hour. Oh, shit. <laughs> go Only half an hour. Up. I was being facetious. It didn't put production back at all. But there was a small investigation into whether Lisa had a lazy eye, and it turned out she didn't, and Damien was wrong. I've got a good Lisa McCune story. Yeah. Okay. Um, Should so I press I pause? No, 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 you can play it. Okay. I'm happy for this one to be out there. So we did um, South Pacific, the musical, together. And yes. she's great. Yeah. I really, really love her. Yeah, I anyway. saw it. You were great in that, mate. You lost about oh, 50 kilos, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I got pretty skinny. Uh, nothing like not wearing a shirt on stage <laughs> to put the fear of God in you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so, you know, we, we had this sort of scene before Honey Bun where we'd be behind this sort of uh, – Flat, and we would just talk about various stuff. So that was our sort of catch up. And I must have been whinging in a matinee about being really stiff in the shoulders and neck. And she had this masseuse that she recommended. She's going, You've got to go see, go to this place. It's amazing. It's the best, this is best massage therapist. So I'm like, Sweet. So she gave me the address. It was around, it was on Burke Street. I go there, and it's like one of those um, yeah, kind of palatial, imperial looking. Chinese massage places, like it looks class, you know, like yeah. old school, huge, ornate red curtains. And anyway, I walk in there and, you know, Lisa's made this appointment for me. I walk in there and um, first thing I notice on, the, on all the walls is all this kind of like printed um, signs that say, please do not ask for um, sexual <laughs> services. It's completely illegal and the cops will be notified. And I'm like, great, right? Um, <laughs> so... I go in and I strip down to my undies and I have this memory of them wanting me to take my undies off, but I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with that. I'm not taking my undies off. <laughs> and, and so anyway, um, lying there, eventually this woman comes out and she's a Chinese woman, she's about 40. She's got the worst fucking cough ever. She's just like <laughs> into her, into her fist. 
Uh, and then, you know, she starts massaging me, like, like cough, 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 massage. Oh, no. And, like, really, like, you know, you want to get that looked at cough, you know? Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a bad one. <laughs> and anyway, she must have kind of coughed, and massa- coughed on me and massaged me for about five minutes. And she goes, you want special? <laughs> and I'm like, this is me. I'm so fucking naive. And I'm like, what's the, what's the special? She's like, you want a hand job? Like, but just like, 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 you want a hand job? Like I'm holding her up. And, and I go, I go to her, oh, um, no, thanks. I said, look, I've really got some serious like issues with my neck and shoulders. So if it's okay with you just today, just, just the massage would be fine. Thanks. I didn't want to like, I don't know. I felt like I felt weird about. It. I didn't want to offend her. You know? Yeah, yeah, no. And and she just goes like a cloud just passes over her face, and she's dark now. And so she goes back and gives me about three minutes of like tepid little just touching, <laughs> and then she's gone. You'll finish. And that was it. Oh. I was in and out in ten minutes because I'd rejected this woman's hand job. Oh my god! And what I went to the theater, and I was like. <laughs> Lisa, <laughs> you know you sent me to a hand job masseuse, right? And she's like mortified. I'm like, what are you doing? She was literally the best, the best, Eddie, the best massage. I'm like, what are you doing in there, McCune? But she was mortified, so I think that she didn't know. <laughs> she didn't know that hand job was an option. <laughs> I love the, I love it. I mean, and the cough too. Presumably, she was right-handed, right? So presumably she's coughing into the balled up fist, the hand that she's going to be doing this wanking with. And I had this like kind of (laughs) contagion vision, like, you know, with this horrible infectious disease spreads amongst the population. You know how in in contagion it does those jump cut flashbacks until the guy's got the pig. I was like, it's going to be those images, an old lady in Prague, you know, people on a riverboat in in the desert. And then it'll just be this woman (laughs) coughing in her hand and putting it on my cock. And it's like, that's how it started. Oh, mate. Um, but I mean, it wasn't that. It wasn't like, oh, you know, if she wasn't coughing, this is big. This would be great. I don't want to get a hand funny. job in one of massage. And I'm. It scarred me because I can't. I can't. I, I like like to go to the odd, like you know, Thai massage place. Yeah, like, yeah. To get a you know like a little. If I'm feeling, you know, before a show and stuff. But now I can't do it. I go, like, I, go I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be a hand job place, and I don't want to offend anyone by saying, is, "There's no way to go." Is this a hand job place? And then go because I don't want one. You know what I mean? They're like, "You'll go. This is a hand job place," and be like, "Yeah." Ah, oh. and it's like, no. And that sometimes that can be, especially you've got a language barrier. That's, uh, I don't want to mention hand jobs, but I just I can't do it. it now. I can't. I can't do it. Lisa I, McCune ruined massages for me. <laughs> Mate, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh, I, oh man, it's not hard. I, I cry all the fucking time. So I cried watching The Voice the other night. You know what makes me specifically cry about The Voice? Is <laughs> um, not like, you know, I don't give a shit about the singers and their journey and whatever. Like, you know, some 16-year-old that's, you know, really been wanting this for so long. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, what do you mean? She's been dreaming about this since last Wednesday. <laughs> He's 16, come on. Anyway, um, I, I really get, um, I find, I get emotional watching the parents that turn up to see their kids perform. Mm. 
Mm. I just kind of imagine what it would be like if I were a parent. I, mean, I don't think I would. I, I imagine maybe I'm a bit of a snob. But I imagine I won't be in that position, but um, I may well be. You know, like standing there and you're on camera, and it's, you, you, you know, you're. It's ba- it's basically everything about having kids is sort of distilled into that moment because you're. You know, you made this child, but the child is their own, and mm. they've decided they've made a decision, and they're doing something really public, really scary. That if it goes, you know, you, your natural instincts want to protect your kids, but they could be they're setting themselves up for like massive hurt. You know, if it's a big desire, and they get rejected, you know, you're, you know, that you cannot you cannot shield them from that possibility in no. that moment. And no. so it's a very pure thing to watch on parents' faces when they're yeah. watching that moment, and I I find that. I find that moving. Yeah, so do I. So do I. Particularly if they're immigrants for some reason. Oh my god, I cry. I cry way more if it's an, like a, an Italian mum or totally. Something. I don't know why. Totally, because they've come so far already, and now yeah. they're here. You know, it's, a, it's such a because the journey is marked. You know, where where someone comes from, Kiel or Downs, you're like, all right, well, <laughs> you got you, you got in the car, but you travelled the vast expanses of space and time and culture and language and yeah. now you're here watching your child sing on the voice it's like that's you've right. really got a lot of eggs in that basket yeah it's, it's make or break um what is your current state of mind um it's pretty good i mean <laughs> like right now it's good i'm enjoying talking to you that's i'm good. standing standing in um the garden that my Wife made. She made a garden out the front of the house. Um, it's quite hard to enjoy a garden in the front of your house because everyone <laughs> walks past. And, you know, like yeah. So you, you're just dealing with um, you're dealing with humans, which yeah. is which is for me, you know, dealing with humans and sitting in a nice garden are sort of mutually exclusive. So mm. um, I like a bit of a seclusion with my gardens, but it's nice and same. Uh, she's put a lot of effort in. It looks really good. And my wife's really funny. Like uh, every now and then people will stop and um, and say nice things about the garden. Oh, that's good. So my wife did um, – did, uh, Lucy did um, uh, a psychology degree last year at Melbourne University, the whole degree, three years in one year. Really? Yeah, n- crazy. That's intense. It's so intense. And she aced it. So she's very – clever um, hard working but she would sit in the front of the house um, have this sort of study desk set up and she was like an art installation because it didn't matter what time of night or day or what past she was sitting there in the window <laughs> tapping away um, but the benefit was that during the day she had the windows open if people you know people couldn't see her and they would stop and she would just listen <laughs> just eavesdrop on people saying nice things about her garden oh that's, that's great like, yeah that's great to, to actually be able to eavesdrop on anything you've created or what people think of any creation that you've made. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, she hasn't got a bad it. review yet, which is good. No, I no. She'd, she'd probably come storming out the house. What the fuck do you know? As long as Jim Shembury's not reviewing it. Not, not as long as that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. What Cameron you- Woodhead. We could go either way with Cameron. It would either be a one-star garden or a five-star garden with Cameron Woodhead. <laughs> that's such extremes. Um what do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, I think I've nailed it with my um, my wife and kids. Like I've, yeah. I've, you know, obviously it's a work in progress and it could go <laughs> south at any time. 
but I'm really lucky in that respect. So whether I can claim all that, because they're all their own people and they're very interesting and kind people, mm. that still feels like, you know, I feel that reflects quite well on me. So I'm, I'm, I think that's a great achievement. But every other, every other time when I think about achievement, it's always in terms of writing. So yep. I think about the things that I've written that I'm kind of proud and embarrassed by equally and and to varying degrees but you know each making something is hard i mean you know like making anything is really hard and um it's so, it's so much of your kind of life and your personal circumstances and what you want to say and who you are bleed into that piece and then it exists and then you move on you write something else but i look back at the back at the pieces i've written and you know i'm really i'm really proud of them like i'm really proud of uh and and you know obviously there are things that I don't like, but you know I, I go I like Shane Warne the musical. I feel like that you know holds up and that's yeah. a, an achievement. And I like um, uh, wrote a piece with songs for the middle, which I did with the Brodsky Quartet, and that was really that was so different to Shane Warne the musical. I wrote it afterwards, almost like an antidote to writing commercial musical. I was like, I'm going to write a show about my suburb of Mentone, and I'm not going to be under any compulsion to make anything funny. And it's going to be musical. It's going to be interesting, and it's going to be about the collaboration between me and the Brodsky Quartet, and me and uh, Ian Grandage, who did all the orchestrations and musical arranging. And I really, I really had no idea. I didn't really care what. Um, obviously, I sort of wanted people to feel what I felt when I wrote it, but I didn't. Um, I didn't put too much expectations on it. I mean, it was a short tour. The Brodskys were only in town for two weeks, and. We made this thing, and um, even though it was about a really specific place, you know, specific kind of Bayside, Melbourne suburb, people kind of um, people from all over the place connected to it because it was sort of you know sort of about childhood and about getting away from a place you didn't really like, and then having mixed feelings about it, and basically celebrating the fact that you know that it doesn't matter sort of who you are or what profile you have or what you do there are people that live in places all over the world and their lives are meaningful and they're full of even in a food court um which yeah. i derided most of my adult life as being kind of kitsch and banal i just didn't want to sneer at the suburbs there's a lot of that kind of aren't people from the suburbs you know less interesting and less cultured and i kind of wanted to write a piece about celebrating people's existence in very ordinary places like ikea or bunnings or yeah. in the car park at the coals or just down the beach you know that about experience that, that, that people have and and not wanting to kind of snobbishly put myself above those people that i ran away from when i was 18 yeah i, I did a bit of running away as well but it's interesting with the going from shane Warne the musical to something I, I guess is which is smaller i mean danny boyle talks about that you know how that, they say okay you've done a movie and it's been a success um now do something bigger I mean that's the that's the, the the Hollywood maxim, but what he says is whenever he does something something that's a success, the next thing he does is smaller, purposely smaller. He goes back to just kind of bare roots kind of filmmaking, you know. And I think that's sometimes a nice a nice thing to do to just kind of earth yourself again after say making something big. Yeah, look if you take the pressure of if you take the pressure off ticking kind of arbitrary boxes that you've set up, and you go okay, well I'm. Yeah. What, am I interested, what am I interested in writing right now and not stress too much? Because some, 
I think some ideas are in, uh, I've sort of worked this out by watching lots of different things. It takes the same amount of energy and time and personnel to make a musical that has a niche audience as it does to make one that has a huge audience. Yeah. Because yeah, it's just inherent in the idea. Some ideas are, you know, applicable across broad demographics of people and they strike a chord and some just don't. They just did little niches and that's fine. So yeah. it's nice to be able to look at a project and go, oh, well, you know, can I not worry too much about whether this is an uncommercial idea or whatever and just, and just make it? Mm. Because, you know, uh, another thing that I sort of experience is that if you go out to just make something that's exactly what people want and commercially, it will probably be a piece of shit. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, who would you want on your side in a battle and why? I'd say my wife, Lucy. My wife's been at my side in many battles, battles I didn't even know I was having. Yeah, right. Um my wife's really, um, you know, she's mal- she's mellowed a little bit, but uh, when I okay, so I, here I'm going to tell the story of how I met my wife because it'll give you some context. So oh, this is not a not a particularly romantic story, but at the same time, it is. We met on the dance floor of Revolver Nightclub <laughs> in Paran on a Sunday morning at about eight a.m. So okay. you can imagine, it doesn't know Revolver. Yeah, good. I'm not going to tell you. It's not great. Doesn't reflect that well on me. Anyway, having a good time. It's my life, and um, <laughs> I see this girl. I see this girl that's just completely gorgeous. And unlike every other time in my life, for some reason on this day, I go up to her and I tell her she's beautiful. And I don't know what made me do that. Probably drugs, I'd say. And. Uh, Anyway, that that was enough that we started talking to each other. And we're sitting on a filthy fucking couch in Revolver, drinking champagne at 8am in the morning, just talking. And she was really funny. And um, at one point, we're sort of standing up talking in, near the dance floor, and there's this really huge drug fucked Greek guy with, like, you know, a sleeveless vest on. And he was walking backwards across the dance floor, sort of staggering backwards, trying to talk to these two girls were walking past and he slammed into Lucy champagne went flying she nearly hit the deck but somehow she didn't and this guy didn't even notice that he'd done it so I was like oh so Lucy turns around she's she was crazy she just runs up to this guy's now his back turns around and just shoves him and he goes flying across the dance floor sprawling across the dance floor and you don't know what hit him. And he gets wow. up and he's apoplectic and he starts swearing. He's like, hey, fuck, bitch, I'm going to kill you. And he walks up to her and he, and he lifts his hand like bloody, I don't know, like Colin Firth and Pride and Prejudice. Like he's he's going to go the backhand or some crazy Holy thing shit. like that. And I'm just standing there like frozen. I don't like, oh, he's going to, I'm, I've been talking to this girl. I really like this girl. He is going to backhand her across the face. That's what's going to happen right now. Oh. And I can't do anything about it. And while he had his hand up, Lucy just stuck her middle finger up and rested it right on his nose. Oh. And I've never seen anything like it. This guy went ballistic and his friends are kind of holding him back and going crazy. And then Lucy just turned around and just went back to the conversation we were having. Like nothing had happened. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in, I'm in love with this woman. 
But we didn't, like, nothing happened that day. We were just kind of, she gave me, she stupidly gave me a business card and then we actually courted via email for about three months. It was really nice. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm much better in, in the written word than I am in, in, the, <laughs> in the spoken. So we basically, we, we would spend hours and hours unbeknownst to each other crafting these, these emails that, that were designed to feel completely spontaneous but were so edited and, <laughs> you know, like we're trying to be funny and witty and urbane and smart. And, That's beautiful. You know. And how, how long ago was that? Uh, it was 10 years ago. Were you both in Melbourne, but you just email was the way to go? I was touring, I think. Oh, okay. Time. Yeah, so yeah. I was, you know, I was all over the place, and then, and so yeah, that was sort of the, the easiest way to do it. In fact, like we got invited by um, Marie Hardy to do a, a people of letters. You know, when you have two people and yeah. they write letters to each other, and so Lucy and I, this really cool thing we did, went in together, and um, we got all the old emails out. And sort of edited out the ones that we wanted, and and then we and then we went back through our text message string of the last kind of couple of years, and just pulled out a whole bunch of really kind of banal. I mean, we 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 text each other, and we still email each other all the time, and like sometimes we'll have a fight, and we'll resolve it via these epic texts. And so <laughs> you could go back to different times in your life and get the text message stream, and then they were really interesting and boring and normal and compare them to when we were first, you know, trying to really impress each other. And then we did that and that was a really That's fun, hilarious. interesting thing to do. That's a great thing to do. And, uh, well, the final question, mate, is what would you like your last words to be? You know what I'd like on my tombstone? Yeah, that's fine too. <laughs> is it all right? I'd yeah. like my tombstone to say, do not read this. <laughs> Because I find that, I find that just that sentence really funny. Yeah. I find it really funny because, you know, obviously, you know, in order to know what it says, you have to break, <laughs> break, break the thing it's asking you to do. Yeah, the author. For wishes. some reason, for, for some reason, I find that linguistically, comedically, the perfect sentence. Like, I have these dreams of when I um. You know, when I have money and I and I and I want to and I can, and I'm really desperate to have money so I can give back to theatre companies that have helped me. And you know, people get those little plaques on the back of the seat yeah. and it's always got their name. Yeah, I just love to have a plaque that says "Do not read this" because I'd sit down and I'd see that and I'd go, "That's funny." We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names. Great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 